0: It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses.
1: Element. Element.
2: Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That, of course, is 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, and anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates, as well as ELM and and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. It is a pleasure to welcome to the show uh, Gregory Brown. He is an adjunct research professor in the Department of Sociology and Anthropology and the Department of Law and Legal Studies at Carleton University. And uh, Greg is here to talk to us about uh, the draft budget uh, of the Ottawa Police Services uh, being tabled and that will include new mental health response strategies. Greg, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. My pleasure to be here.
2: Well, I understand that uh, the police board met and uh, a draft budget was uh, tabled on November 4th.
1: That's my understanding,
2: yes. So what can you tell us about this and getting us to this point? Why is something like this needed? Can you give us some background?
1: Well, I think it all uh, stems from a pretty major shift in our society in terms of uh, public engagement mm. with uh, policing. So uh, I'm old enough to remember a time when I think it would be fairly characterized in some of my colleagues around the world that have written scholarly articles on on policing, I think would concur with this statement, that uh, not too long ago, you know, 20, 30 years ago, uh, in most communities in Western dem- democratic societies, the police were essentially left alone to do what the police do. The public didn't really have a tremendous interest in uh, what the police did or how they did it. They just wanted to be safe. And apparently the police were qualified in addressing the issues they had to address. And sort of how they did that uh, wasn't a big concern of a vast majority of the population. And so um, so that's kind of where we were then. That I think most people would, uh, would agree with the statement that that's not really the way That it is today. Of course, we've seen a massive increase in uh, calls for uh, more scrutiny of the police, more accountability. There's been new social movements. Uh, Black Lives Matter is probably the the best known example, but there's many others that are calling for uh, not only scrutiny and increased oversight of the police, uh, often termed accountability, but also um, for the consideration of, of a remodeling of how policing services are performed in the community. And, and I think that's where we're at today in many conversations. Of course, in the the emotional aftermath of the death of George Floyd mm. uh, earlier this year, there was, there was a lot of emotional venting. There was a lot of sort of, uh, as I would characterize them, knee-jerk calls for abolishing the police altogether, uh, you know, eliminating police budgets, the, these kind of things. I think that emotional... Uh, reaction has uh, dissipated a bit now to the point we're into we're into some sort of reflective contemplation on is there other ways that policing can be delivered or or more accurately is there other ways that some some duties that are traditionally done by the police uh, could be downloaded onto onto something better and that's kind of where we are now.
2: You mentioned 20, 30 years ago. What has changed? I mean, one of the things that I can think about, it was raised in other conversations that I've had, and that is the the arming of the police. They become, you know, they have much more uh, 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 almost military-type armaments at this point in time. Why was that necessary? What, what happened in the last 20 to 30 years?
1: Sure. Well, that's... Uh that That's one aspect of, of the transformation, and so I think what happened um, in in relation to the what's often called the militarization of of policing is that officers um, demanded through union usually their their union representatives labor representatives uh, better protection um, in terms of how how they do their job out in the field and so it was uh, right up until in the the early 1990s, that police in Canada had uh, 38 caliber uh, revolvers, uh, and there was a demand made for uh, semi-automatic pistols. Most police services transitioned to that. There was always tactical uh, teams in most major uh, police services that that had some specialized weapon, rifles, um, assault rifles, those kind of those kind of weapons. Uh, but frontline officers, through their union representatives i think said look you're you're putting us in a dangerous uh, position and and this has really become um, a focus uh, since uh, some major terrorist episodes ha- took place around the world where you had very heavily armed i 'm thinking here specifically of of um, the incident in Paris hmm. uh, where organized terrorists with heavy weapons uh, murdered a lot of people there there was the tragic uh, video that Unfortunately, I had to watch a a few times of of a Paris police officer who had tried to engage with these people. He'd been shot and wounded. Uh, You know, he just has a a handgun, and uh, one of the terrorists walks up and finishes him off, executes him with a a high-end military-type weapon. So Mm -hmm. I think the police said, we need some better uh, firepower. We can't be outgunned uh, in some of these Mm -hmm. uh, scenarios. Uh, And certainly that is available um, to the police. They're legally entitled to use those kind of weapons, and there's certainly no shortage of manufacturers that are willing to sell them to police. So I think that's one arm of, of what it is we're talking about in terms of militarization of police.
2: Okay, that, that makes sense, of course. Uh, people, uh, Police do need to have their... their uh their protection that they need in in those situations, uh, as you pointed out, uh, terrorist situations. But it seems that the... the um, and maybe this is another conversation, but it seems like uh, what has happened over time is that police have started to use those kind of... Uh, the kind of weaponry and the kind of defenses that they have more for, in general, uh, we might see them coming out in, in, in protests and those kind of things, general protests. But, um, so... I, you know that's that's a that's understood uh but I guess also that reflects on our society and what has happened in in our general society over time but it, it, it
1: does uh, David we've also you know in any major canadian city uh, I've done research with with the police in major american cities as well uh you know you have uh Organized gangs that are that are heavily armed. We mm-hmm. we all see news stories from time to time about police, you know, massive seizures of you know fifty handguns, mm-hmm. brand new, coming coming into a community and things like that. And and so I think the police have perceived, whether rightly or wrongly, uh, that they need to up their game in terms of this militarization uh, component. You know, I, I live in this society. I'm not immune to uh, to emotional re- reactions. And I certainly, uh, you know, when I travel in Europe, I, I was very uncomfortable with seeing, you know, heavily armed uh, police officers, not soldiers, but police officers in airports and things. And so when that's come into Canada, you know, it, it was alarming to see mm. officers with a, uh, a C8 assault rifle slung around their neck, you know, walking up and down in front of Parliament Hill on, on Canada Day. That, mm. That's something we're not used to yeah. as a society.
2: You know, that's a good point. I remember actually traveling in Europe, And uh, I was in, uh, I believe, Athens at the time, and I was... Uh, I just arrived on a train. I was, you know, just traveling around backpacking across the country at that point. And I do remember going around on this, whatever transit I was on or or transport and and saw a group of uh, officers and they were heavily armed as well. And I I thought, wow, what's going on? Uh, But in fact, they were just hanging out, you know, Uh, but they were heavily armed and you could see them just hanging around and there wasn't seem to be any situation, but it was a bit of alarm when you when you're not used to that, and you see that. so yeah, you're you're quite right. Um, but of course, at this point in time we're we're looking at the focus that is happening on on mental health and mental health I- situations and issues where police are called in um, for for situations that escalate and and they're not necessarily uh, situations that one, the police are are trained to handle. Uh, and two, that escalates to a situation where, unfortunately, lives are taken, and and the police are, you know, defending themselves against someone that might be coming at them with a knife or whatever. And it's un- really unfortunate that those kind of situations get to the point where the police feel they are threatened, at, at, you know, and and have to take. Uh, take action that involves a a handgun or something that they are are using against someone else when uh, there could be other ways to defuse the situation that the police are not ready for and and that's I guess where the, we are sitting at this point we we're trying to find out. Uh, how how the police services can be, uh, I guess, accompanied by mental health workers. I understand that that there is that in some cities, and I believe the Ottawa uh, police services have though that uh, a, a contingency of police officers that are are trained in this area, but by by all means, not enough, as I'm sure many other police services. But I also understand that there are mental health workers that can go out and accompany police uh, on these calls where. There could be uh, the, the potential for for harm, uh, you know, either to the person and or to the police or the people that are going to check in on these people. Um, what is your sense of that?
1: Well, some, some jurisdictions have implemented uh, these type of, of joint programs, uh, as you described, uh, David. You know, having a, a social worker, usually somebody with a, a master's in social work um, or similar degree, um accompanying the police presumably with some better uh training and uh, tools in their in their toolbox to try to uh, to diffuse a very uh high energy dynamic type of of situation which is uh, which is when the police uh typically will will get called um those programs have been limited of course they cost uh, a fair bit of money Mm. um and there hasn't been a real commitment shown to those to those kind of of programs. I think primarily because of of fiscal constraint uh, when you talk about uh, staffing a position uh, twenty four hours a day three hundred and sixty five days a year when you consider time off and vacation and those kind of things, you need seven individuals to staff that one mm. position so in a large city um, like Toronto. If you were going to have a widespread uh, rollout of such a, a program, you'd be talking about literally probably hundreds uh, of such individuals that would be accompanying uh, the police. Mm. One of the other issues that comes up quite often, and it's one people don't, don't consider, is that the vast majority of police calls uh, for people in, in a mental health uh, crisis moment come in as, as criminal complaints. Uh, without any indication around the the mental distress that an individual's in, mm. uh, you know, somebody just robbed a store that's reported as a robbery. Somebody's right. just punched somebody in the face as they walked along the sidewalk. That's right. called in as as an assault. So, uh, I have some empathy for our frontline officers that are are responding essentially blind mm-hmm. or, or devoid of of a bunch of relevant information uh, to a certain situation and and they encounter what they encounter with with almost no, no information. It's a very precarious position for, for the officers,
2: uh, if you can imagine. Absolutely, and and by no means I don't think anyone is is saying that officers shouldn't be uh, protecting themselves. They are, uh, after all, putting themselves out there on the front line to to protect the the community. And I can understand the stress that police officers, uh, to some degree, at least in general, that they would be facing uh, going out to to some of these uh, some of these unknowns, as you just pointed out. So, uh, yeah, hats off to all our police officers that. Go out there to protect us uh, in the community. Now, in this article in the Ottawa Citizen uh, that uh, sees back here on October 22nd, um, it's it's stated that about 6,000 calls uh, come in annually to the Ottawa Police Services uh, in a given year uh, dealing with someone in a mental health crisis. Now, that doesn't Uh, That doesn't identify whether it is it is uh, after the fact that is known or like you said, uh, police officers are going out uh, to these situations blindly. But it identifies 6000 calls. And I thought, what does that break down to in in a a weekly basis? And and I, I did the math and it's like over 100 calls a week that that's a lot of calls uh, in in terms of this so obviously you know that's something in, in this uh, if we're dealing with a mental health crisis uh, 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 for the police to be dealing with that's a lot of calls on a weekly basis where these things obviously look like they need more attention given to them
1: that, that is a that is a significant number and, and perhaps it speaks to the fact that that most of us in our society are are naive about mm. The, the prevalence of mental health uh, challenges mm. uh, amongst our, our friends and family uh, in the community, uh, you know, this this evolved, This doesn't evolve in, in a vacuum. This evolves from decisions that were made many years ago uh, in various jurisdictions in across Western democracy, where where it was thought that incapacitating people with serious mental health uh, challenges. Uh, was no longer a way that we should deal deal with those individuals as a humane society, and so you know years ago there used to be uh, quite a number of institutions uh, that were designed to treat mentally ill people but let's be honest, what they really did was was essentially warehouse these people uh, away from the rest of society so a decision was made that that was not the way we should behave in a in a progressive society and so A lot of those institutions were closed. The individuals that were housed therein were supposed to be transitioned into a community-based mental health framework where they would get assistance uh, while living in the community. And somewhere along the way, that, that second part essentially got forgotten, which brings us to where we are today, where the police are really the only or certainly the front line of mental health services delivered in the community. And, of course, the police get involved, when somebody is, is acting out, uh, which mm-hmm. is, you know, the, the exact moment of crisis, uh, where they could probably use a different form of in- intervention, but, but we've completely forgotten, uh, and, and I know there's volunteer organizations, there's some people that are really trying to do some work here, but in terms of the government committing to handling mental health in the community, there, there really isn't the commitment there. Uh, which brings us into the situation where, when somebody has a mental health crisis, it's the police that that the responsibility falls on to deal with them.
2: And, and so now, you know, there's been lots of calls about, you know, uh, putting putting a, a halt uh, or calling back the budgets of police services, and and having those having that money uh, directed more towards uh, areas that could help in terms of health services. Uh, the the police services in Ottawa say they uh, want to in their budget they wanted to you know sort of improve that uh, within the budget. Um, what is your sense of of how this might roll out or, or or how that is is going to be implemented? Well,
1: the police historically the budget only goes one direction, which is up, mm. uh, and, and police will vigorously resist any cuts to to their budget. And I suspect in Ottawa and and many other cities, that will be the, the position. Uh, I, wouldn't, um, I wouldn't support wholesale reallocation of funds because the police do have a core responsibility. Unless we want to remodel the entire delivery of policing, uh, get away from the, the community-based policing uh, philosophy that's been in, in policing for the last 50 years. If, if we're looking at a complete remodel, where the police essentially, uh, as it's termed uh, in the United Kingdom, and I just bored it for, for the book chapter that I'm writing, uh, if we want to engage in strictly fire brigade policing, so the police would, would respond basically as, as does the fire department when there's an emergency crisis uh, and not do any proactive initiatives in the community, then, then you can start looking at some wholesale uh, budget cuts. Um, but I'm not sure society is ready for that complete remodeling of police. So you'd be looking at a very small uh, component. And I think in the real world, what this would roll out would be more of a token program to have a couple of social workers from time to time uh, rolling with the the police officers out in in the community, which isn't really what we need if we want to really make a dramatic impact here. What we need is a massive investment in community-based mental health so that the issues are addressed before the police are called. Before someone is victimized by someone in a mental health crisis, which generates a 911 call, which generates the police attending and the police dealing with somebody in a moment of acute crisis, Uh, you know, perhaps armed with a knife, acting irrationally, charging at the police. Often, you know, in lots of these uh, episodes that I review, often uh, trying to commit what's known as suicide by cop. We're sort of addressing the issue in the last chapter of the book. Where we should maybe be looking at mental health issues in society uh, in the first chapter of the book with a whole different model of how we address mental health in society before the police get involved. Does that make sense?
2: Mm. Yeah. Before we go any further, you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa and anywhere across the country if you download the Radio Player Canada app. Type in one of those two coordinates as well as E L M N T F M, and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. My guest is Gregory Brown. He's an adjunct research professor in the Department of Sociology and Anthropology and the Department of Law and Legal Studies at Carleton University. It's a pleasure to have Greg with us on the show. Uh, budget cuts, as you say, probably not going to happen. What do you think about the idea of, of then including more of these mental health services or, or having something that, that would uh, align themselves with the police services that would work together, uh, as you say, uh, to, you know, instead of having the police called first, they get called as needed into these kind of situations. How, do you, how would you see that maybe working? Well
1: that would be the model that I would be in favor of. I would I would like to see some integration of, of mental health workers uh, within the police although we shouldn't sell some of our police officers uh, short. The the public may not appreciate but but uh, we have some very highly qualified um, police officers working now in frontline policing. We have some with PhDs, we yeah. have some with with graduate degrees in, in social work and psychology and, and things like that. But certainly not in numbers uh, you know to to suggest that that no uh, support is is required. it's just something I find interesting, having taught um, many police officers in a university environment and, and they've and they've gone on with some some pretty impressive credentials in terms of of addressing mental health. But what I would see is, is sort of a, a dual model where we have some embedded people with the police, but then, as i said we we commit to community-based resources that would be run outside of the policing apparatus. And we could have liaison between those two entities to hopefully address an issue before it bubbles to the surface and requires a police response. I mean, that would be the ideal uh, model. Uh, you, know, you would have somebody that, uh, to the workers, the community-based workers, appears to be off their medication, they're beginning a to show some symptoms that are, that are concerning. There would be some liaison with the police, mental health type of people to try to intervene before this manifests in a, in an acute crisis and somebody getting hurt and potentially a police officer getting hurt or, Mm. or the individual getting hurt in that transaction. So I see it. That would be the ideal model. Of course, that would cost a significant amount of money. So,
2: and and I would also guess a significant, significant amount of time to implement.
1: well, if they gave me the money tomorrow, I could probably get something <laughs> rolling pretty quickly. But uh, but I get your point. Yes, uh, the wheels turn very slowly in these kind of uh, situations. But what we do see is, is a public will. I mean, this has a lot of momentum. Mm. Uh, the public seems to be suggesting that the status quo is not uh, acceptable. And so public will often will lead to pressure on uh, political uh, entities. And And once they get the will, then I think we could do something reasonably quickly. Mm. We have a pretty qualified workforce uh, in most Canadian cities. um, And so I I think we could do something. It's just a question of of money, which Mm. is, of course, scarce. And there's lots of other priorities. But Mm. if this is identified as by society at large as a major issue, then uh, political actors will have to respond to their constituents. Uh,
2: you mentioned the public will, and I'm wondering about. It sounds like there's interest in, in terms of the the uh, the sector, the public sector, the private sector, in terms of the mental health workers themselves, maybe getting involved and in, in working with this. Do you think there would be a, a willingness on the the side of the police to also uh, want to work in conjunction with with uh, healthcare workers?
1: I can tell you unequivocally frontline police officers would absolutely love to to do anything to diminish mm-hmm. or or completely eradicate this responsibility from their portfolio. Mm-hmm. Uh, for frontline officers, these are the calls that, that they most dread, mm-hmm. uh, dealing with a person who is in a mental health crisis, who's acting irrationally, who is showing a, a significant threat uh, to the police officer. Of course, if I'm a frontline police officer and uh, – David, if you're charging at me with a very sharp knife, and you're telling me your intention is to kill me, at that point, to me, it doesn't really matter whether you have a mental illness or not. You're a human being that's trying to kill me, yeah. and and I'm going to defend myself. And, and our law recognizes that the police have have right. a right to defend themselves. And so, uh, police officers don't enjoy these type of, of situations. And now, of course, with the sort of momentum that it has in society and and some some animated uh, conversations the police even more than than normal uh, don't want to be involved in these situations so any reforms would certainly be broadly welcomed by frontline officers today.
2: As you were just talking there, I was just, this popped into my head and, and just wondering, and, and absolutely an officer should be able to defend himself if someone is coming at them like that uh, in any given situation. Is, is the idea that an officer would try to uh, uh, stop a person rather than just just, you know, uh, kill the person. I mean, there's different, if if an officer has a weapon and, and, and it's a gun that they can, they can shoot someone with, it, 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 would they be trying to, for instance, uh, you know, just stop the person prior to just out and out, uh, you know, kill the person when, uh, if they're charging at them, you know, maybe there's different places an officer can shoot a person if they want to stop them.
1: Sure. Well, you can try. Uh, this is a this is a question that gets asked often by my by my students. Mm. And so, what you're talking about there is a is an incredibly dynamic situation that okay. unfolds uh, typically uh, in milliseconds. Yes. Uh, and so, so something happens. It's dynamic. The the officer's brain is overloaded. Yep. The human system. Uh, uh, injects all, all kinds of uh, chemicals into the body, the fight right. fight or flight response yeah. is activated, and an officer is trying to, to make a decision about how to save their life yes. uh, in milliseconds. Yes. Sometimes if these things unfold uh, in a slower pace and, and there's some opportunity for some deliberation on how to respond, officers can attempt to use uh, what's known as less than lethal techniques. So, yeah. Taser is, is one of the mm. common ones, pepper spray, mm possibly trying to uh, overpower physically mm. uh, the individual. But all of those things, uh, to put it bluntly, uh, amount to an officer risking their life. Yes. T- taking a calculation that uh, if I do this, uh, then, then it's going to be successful. And if I'm unsuccessful, I'm risking losing my life. Yeah. And so officers are traditionally trained uh, with an armed subject that's capable of causing grievous bodily harm or death. The, the go-to weapon is the firearm.
2: Yeah,
1: uh, police officers don't shoot intentionally to kill anybody. That's often the result when yes. they shoot in the in the mid torso right. area. Yeah, they're trained to shoot at the largest part of our body mass, right. and for most of that, that's the area sure. below the head, mm-hmm. between the shoulders down to the to the abdomen. Right. Um, the idea being that in a moment of extreme stress, where you're contemplating shooting another human being, which all of us, I'm sure, would, would not be something we would want to have to do. Correct. Uh, it's just asking too much with the yep. limited amount of training police get to try to wing the person, you know, shoot right. them in the arm or yeah. the leg. Yep. Uh, contrary to, to, to most people's knowledge, a handgun is not the most accurate right. instrument in, in the world. And, right. and so if you start shooting lead projectiles and missing the person, uh, you're hitting whatever is behind that person. Mm-hmm. And, and, and in, and get, you know, in these situations, often there's an audience, people with their camera phones, video recording yeah. this, this police interaction. And yeah. so that, that's one of the rationales behind the police not... Yeah. Not trying
2: yeah. to do that, and of course you do make a good point. When when this does unfold, it usually happens very quickly, and you know we're not taking into, into account the the proximity of these people, uh, how close or how far away they might be. There may not be time to to think about it any more than and like you just said. So absolutely uh, understand that. Uh, the one thing you did raise up just as we finish up here is that the you you say there are a lot of police officers that are well educated that have a lot of uh, a, a great knowledge and, and uh, uh, those kind of things. But what do we know about the the uh, police services in terms of what are requirements uh, to apply for police uh, to become a police officer? What are the what are the minimums? That
1: sure, I'm actually glad that the conversation uh, evolved around to this because I have a novel idea that I'll, that I'll share with your okay. with your listeners. So uh, to answer your question directly. Um, the, the requirement for a police officer in most Canadian jurisdictions, Ontario is the one I'm most familiar with, has remained static for probably 40 or 50, 50 years. Uh, a person has to be a Canadian citizen, no criminal record, a high school education, uh, minimum age now is, is 21 years old, uh, no significant uh, health issues. I think those are all of the criteria for today. The reality is, that if you want to be engaged by a by a police service. The pay is, is quite good. I don't hear very many frontline Mm -hmm. officers complaining about the pay. So it's a pretty high paying job. There's some very good benefits, a good pension plan, good time off for, for people that enjoy doing uh, activities. The Mm -hmm. the time off is, is very good. Um, so the reality is for, for people getting into policing today, typically a, a minimum of the undergraduate university degree is required to succeed in the process. I mean, mm-hmm. if you can have 10,000 people apply, but the police department's only hiring 10 people, uh, they're going to pick the candidates with, with the higher degree of education, which brings me to, to my sort of um, idea on this uh, that nobody else, I don't think, has broached yet, certainly not in any academic context. What about training police officers to become um, more, more adept at dealing with mental health crisis in the community? So sending police officers to earn a Master of Social Work degree or even a PhD in perhaps clinical psychology. Mm. A lot of officers are very, very bright. They already have the undergraduate foundation. And mm. many officers, I think, would enjoy pursuing Great. a higher education and then delivering those services uh, in their community.
2: Great. Sounds, sounds like a good idea, for sure. And as you say, uh, may be welcomed by, by many officers that are looking to advance themselves in that area. For sure. Greg, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the show.
1: It's my pleasure, David. Take care.
2: All right, you too. Take care. That's uh, Greg Brown. He's an adjunct research professor in the Department of Sociology and Anthropology and the Department of Law and Legal Studies at Carleton University. And we've been talking to him about... Uh, police budgets and and mental health issues and uh, police being called in on those mental health issues. Uh, Something very much in the news these days. That's uh, this part of the program. Please don't go away because we're going to be right back with more right after this right here on Moment of Truth on Element FM. I'm your host David Moses.
0: Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses.
1: Element. Element. Element FM.
2: Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto. Anywhere across the country, if you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates, as well as ELMNT-FM. Then listen on your device of choice, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's a pleasure to welcome to the show Sean Sportin. He is the uh, chairman of Crime Stoppers in Toronto, and he helps organize different events for the company. So it's a pleasure to welcome Sean to the show. Thank you, David. I'm glad to be here. Well, Crime Stoppers is, of course, something we're all very familiar with. And, uh, you know, maybe you can give us uh, just by starting a little bit of an overview of right. when did when did Crime Stoppers, for instance, first come into play and, and why?
0: Yeah, so I mean, the concept of Crime
2: Stoppers started in
0: 1976 in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and uh, although it was a U.S. born initiative, it was actually a Canadian, uh, a transplanted Canadian uh, detective that worked with the Albuquerque Police Department that uh, created the the concept. Now, in Toronto, we began our program in 1984, um, and for the last 36 years, the program has worked tirelessly to ensure criminals are made account for their crimes. Um, you know, one of the, the main things that I think uh, people don't know or don't understand is that Crime Stoppers is a 100% charitable organization that is run by a volunteer board of directors. Um, it's not a police-run program, although we do have a detective and a school community officer uh, seconded to um, what we do, but the concept itself is not a police-run program.
2: Well, that is interesting. I don't think I realized that it was a charitable donation operation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, I mean,
0: with COVID, you know, we've we've been impacted as well as other Crime Stoppers programs uh, around the world, really. But, I mean, our biggest fundraisers, our Chief of Police Gala and our golf tournament, um, and since COVID has, uh, you know, kind of introduced itself into the world, our charitable fundraising efforts have been very limited, um, if, if any at all. So, it does impact us but the the unique thing about toronto crime stoppers is we do a little th- do things a little bit different as of uh, january of this year where we don't pay tipsters for rewards anymore what we do is we take that money and we redirect it back into the community for community programs. so um you know that that initiative has been proven to be very effective in what we do uh, our tips are are actually par for where they were last year so um, the program seems to be heading in a, in a pretty uh, good direction.
2: Mm. You mentioned COVID. How has how has COVID affected things for you? Is it uh, increasing the use of Crime Stoppers, for instance, in any way?
0: Actually, yeah, it has. I mean, you know, early on when the new regulations and restrictions came out, um, you know, we partnered with uh, the Health Unit in Toronto and other organizations to be a avenue for people to report anonymously when they saw. Uh, you know, things that weren't being um, complied with. Um, But we're still receiving, you know, tips on gun activity, uh, homicides, you name it, we get it. So Crime Stoppers is still very active in the community, even though COVID um, has, uh, you know, kind of taken over.
2: Mm. Uh, You mentioned uh, uh, tips on on guns and those kind of things. Uh, I I didn't really uh, think of that, but... um, what kind of, if people have something to report in that regard, what do they call in with, and and, and, and when? I mean, you know, it could, could be any right? I mean, when you see something in the
0: community that is happening, especially around, uh, you know, the nonsense that we're seeing with the increase of gun activity, mm-hmm. and you know, recently with the, the 12-year-old innocent young man yeah. who lost his life, um, when you see something, you call it in. I, I think one of the biggest things that we want to get across is that community safety is a shared responsibility. We all pay a part uh, in having Toronto be a safer place. And if you know someone with an illegal gun, or you know who is involved in the gunplay that we are seeing in our communities, you need to speak up. The biggest hurdle that I think is out there, and then I'm from Toronto, I grew up in Toronto, um, I understand the no snitching code, but to, to that I say two things. One, it takes courage to do the unpopular. Uh, It also takes courage to do the right thing, which is, uh, you know, something that could likely save someone's life in the community or even someone that is close to you, right? So when you see something or you know something, you should be reporting it because you don't know what could happen after that. And second to that, you know, at an early age, we teach our children uh, to tell us when they see something wrong or if someone's harming them. Um, so why as adults do we label those who speak up against crime, you know, the word snitch uh, instead of embracing them for the courage to just make their community a safer place. Mm. you know, what we really need to understand is the word snitch and, you know, that word, when you look it up in the urban dictionary, you know it was a word created by criminals for criminals who told on other criminals mm. concerned citizens in the community are not criminals. They're just trying to, out of fear, and we get it, right? We get that you know you, you don't want to be identified, and you don't want to go to court. And Crime Stoppers is the perfect avenue for you to speak up and pass along that information, so that police can still do an investigation without having that person who called in um, having to go to court or having their identity known.
2: Right. Now you know when, when you think of Crime Stoppers, uh, we always think about people, as you said, you know, calling in when you see something. Right. Which sounds very reactive, but there must be a proactive side of this as well for for people that, uh, and, and for uh, Crime Stoppers.
0: Absolutely. You know, that's a really good um, topic to bring up. And, you know, I want to say, you know, a profound thank you to Element FM 1065 in Toronto for the partnership that we created um, back in the spring where, you know, we connected um with you guys we created a couple of public service announcements in and around you know the gun activity that we were seeing and that's what crime stoppers does in the community as well is yeah we are technically a reactive program but we do a lot of things in the community awareness campaigns um you know not now but obviously with covid prior to covid we would be in the community we'd be going to community events to spread the message of crime stoppers if you see something say something and that's that's the you know proactive message that we want the community members to um, listen to and to follow is that when you see something or you hear something and you make that call, you could potentially prevent another incident another shooting from occurring right and that's the proactive part of what we're trying to do with
2: the messaging so is is crime stoppers would you do you feel making a difference Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know,
0: here are some uh, statistics from the inception of Toronto Crime Stoppers, right? So since inception in 1984, we received 167,000 tips, mm. uh, resulting in over 11 hundred or 11,000 arrests. Almost 40,000 charges have been laid, nearly $65 million in property recovered, wow. and over $316 million in illegal narc- uh, narcotics mm. being taken off our streets. So does the program work? One hundred percent. Absolutely. This this past year. So this year that we're in right now, we've received so far fifty four hundred tips into Toronto crime stoppers that have helped uh, solve homicides, abductions, identified fentanyl drug dealers, taking guns off the street and so much more. Right. So when you when you think even if we were to remove one handgun from the street,
2: Mm.
0: the program works.
2: Right. Yeah, well said. Now you you mentioned Toronto a number of times, but of course, Point Stoppers is 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 national. It's it's right across absolutely, country. and and I'm sure that the the same rules and the same applications apply in terms of anyone wanting to call in or or wanting to help.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's 38 programs across Ontario, um, close to 80 programs across Canada, um, but this is an international um, program, right? We have. Uh, you know it, it, individual regional programs right across the u.s and into many countries as well as you know over uh, global oversight with the crime stoppers international and anyone in ontario anyone in canada and throughout the u.s can call 1-800-222-TIPS so that's one eight hundred eight four seven seven 8477 at any time and you'll get your local crime stoppers program and now You know, if you are in, let's say, York region and you have a tip regarding something in Toronto or vice versa, as soon as that information comes into the local program that uh, the 1-800 number pings to, that information is going to be transferred over to this specific Crime Stoppers program. And then what we do, and the officers in our unit uh, and units across the board, is they vet that tip. So they'll take out any identifiers in the tip that could be um, in, investigators or anyone else back to the tipster. We take the raw material, we vet it, we send it off to the uh, appropriate investigative agency, they do the investigation, and the tipster is 100% made anonymous.
2: What would you say are the areas that we still need to work on that uh, Crime Stoppers specifically may have? Uh, Weak areas that we we think we that maybe the you know the general public can help out more. Yeah,
0: very good question. I mean, first and foremost is you know, we try every Crime Stoppers program tries really hard to break that stigma that we are not a police program, that Mm. your anonymity is 100% secure, right? So, that is a constant you know movement that we try to do in our program, but. The community needs to understand, as I said, that community safety is a shared responsibility. We need to take care of ourselves, we need to take care of each other and our neighbors. When you see something happening in your community and you don't want to be a witness and you don't want to speak to police, try Crime Stopper. The only way you are ever gonna be identified is if you tell other people that you called Crime Stopper. Right. Right? So this is this is traditionally a community run program. Um, and, and that ties into the police, the media, and the most important part is the community. We need that information um, from, from those out there that see things and hear things in order for, you know, the police to do their, their work. I mean, police investigators work tirelessly to solve crimes. Um, you know, 14% of, of most crimes are solved because somebody has provided information to help investigators, mm. Right. And that could be in anything. That could be a witness walking along the street that said, hey, I saw this or that. It could be crime stoppers. It could be anything. So we really need to have that community engagement side of things, um, especially now with what's going on in the city of Toronto and this gun activity. Um, you know, innocent lives are being being taken. Um, families are being ruined because of this, this nonsensical gun violence that we're experiencing. And, you know, the Toronto police are doing their job and working, um, you know, the information and being dedicated to solving these crimes. But we do need the community to step forward because all it takes is one person to come forward and say, "Hey, you know, I saw a car." Let's say, right. and then that solves the crime mm. because it's going to mm. lead lead investigators down a path of investigative techniques that could right. identify that car. Right? right. So it's important that we all, um, you know, don't worry about snitching and this and that. I get it. I mean, you know, you, nobody wants to be labeled a snitch, but um, that's a criminal word.
2: That's yeah.
0: that's not a community, you know, member who's trying to make their community safer right. Um, word, right?
2: Yeah, you know, it is very interesting how the word has a negative connotation mm-hmm. that has been built up over time. Um, <laughs> that's really interesting. Um, so what is it, you know, someone calls in, they can call in 24 hours a day. Yes. What, it t- what does it take for, for the operation to operate, you know, Crime Stoppers? Obviously, you have volunteers that, that man these phones. How does that work on the back end?
0: Yeah, um, so we have a national call center. And so those employees, uh, they work for the national call center for all Crime Stoppers programs in, in Ontario, throughout Canada, into the U.S. Um, so we have to pay each individual program has to pay into that service. Um, so there, there is overhead cost that, that we ab, uh, have to absorb. Um, but you can call in. You can even uh, text in or um, go online and send an online tip. It's all being managed by the call service. When an incident comes in, it's redirected to the appropriate Crime Stoppers program. In our case, it's in Toronto. So anything to do with Toronto will come to Toronto. And then if it is a... Uh, you know, a tip that has exigent circumstances, so it's really important things are happening right now as we speak, then, you know, our, our coordinator and our uh, engage uh, school and uh, community engagement officer will take appropriate actions to make sure that, you know, that is given to the uh, right uh, police agency or division or unit to act, uh, you know, appropriately in real time. So, you know, this, this again is, is where we talk about proactive you know, hey, I'm seeing this is happening right now, Um, you know, there obviously needs to be some verification that needs to take place because you can't just simply call crime stoppers and and think that, you know, coppers are going to go kick in a door. Mm. Um, So there is some verification that takes place to validate the information and then police will act accordingly.
2: Okay. And and as you said, um, you know, 24 hours a day access, and and I guess anyone can call, right? doesn't matter if they're (laughs) young.
0: Yeah, absolutely, for sure. I mean, anybody can call Crime Stoppers. Um, you could have information on illegal contraband tobacco. You could have, um, hey, my neighbor, uh, I think, is doing a grow-up. I mean, it could be anything that, uh, you know, you may see as a concern or have information on. Crime Stoppers doesn't discriminate when it comes to crime or, um, you know, getting involved to make sure that the community is safer.
2: What's the what's the fine line for Making a call uh, in in your desire to help versus uh, someone holding a grudge and potentially you know maybe just want the, they think they're doing the right thing but in fact it's more just uh, an annoyance and they make the call uh, you know but but really it's it's not it's not a crime it's not something in that regard it's it's more of a of a, of a uh they're trying to create problems for somebody. Do you get occasional those kind of calls as well?
0: Yeah, for sure. You know, it's a good question to ask. Um as I said, you know, any type of a tip that comes in, there is an investigative verification type process that needs to happen, right? So that could be, you know, let's say uh you know, you're breaking up with your girlfriend Mm. and now your girlfriend is like, okay, well, I'm going to cause trouble for you. And I'm going to call in, you know, bogus crime stoppers, right. As an example, you know, the police are crime stoppers and the police are going to try to verify that information. There's many ways that police can, can look into that. Um, And, you know, if it's found that someone is using uh, crime stoppers as an avenue to commit a crime, Mm. then you're not a tipster, right? So you're right. now actually a criminal. You're right. not going to be protected under the uh, same provisions that a tipster has. So mm. that becomes a whole nother legal issue right. um, that would play out where, um, you know, there, there could be possibility where uh, crime stoppers would have to help identify that person. Um, but again, every, everything is anonymous, right? So it's virtually impossible to um, identify someone. But yeah, I mean, if you're using crime stoppers as a, Uh, for him to commit a a crime, you're not going to be covered under the provisions of anonymity that uh, a tipster
2: would. Mm, Right. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates as well as ELMNTFM and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day. My guest is Sean Sportin. He is the uh, chairperson of Crime Stoppers in Toronto. And hey Sean, it, you know, it says you, you organize different events for the company. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah. So,
0: you know, our fundraisers, uh, you know, our biggest one in Toronto is our chief of police dinner. Um, we have our golf tournament. You know, we could partner with other organizations um, that are out there in the community um, doing community engagement activities, whether that be with uh, Circle K and doing their positive ticketing campaign, and working with uh, the corporation as well as the police. Um, it could be simply going out and speaking at um, different community venues and spreading the message of Crime Stoppers. Uh, you know, one one real good partnership that uh, was actually started in Toronto and became a global um, partnership was the partnership with Uber. Mm. Um, and understanding, uh, you know, two years ago, we did a human trafficking campaign to bring awareness to you know, that issue that we're seeing growing in the GTA and around Canada as well as the world and understanding that, um, you know, some of these uh, individuals are being moved around through ride sharing apps. So we reached out to Uber and said, hey, you know, would you like to be part of a partnership with Crime Stoppers and, you know, educate your drivers on if they see something suspicious, mm-hmm. you know, they have the, uh, the avenue to call Crime Stoppers, remain anonymous. And they were all about it. And that uh, kind of started that partnership. And, you know, what we've done in Toronto is, uh, you know, a few times a year, we, we work with Uber, their law enforcement team and go out and do presentations to their drivers just to make sure they understand what Crime Stoppers is, how they remain anonymous and run through scenarios, right? And you will ask a question and, and, you know, drivers will put up their hand and say, well, here's a scenario. Mm -hmm. And we'll say, yeah, that was probably, you know, human trafficking or some other type of crime. And then now you have these millions of drivers or or millions of um, rides that are happening every single month. And you have these drivers who are now eyes and ears So when they see something, they know where to report. Right. So that's an example of of things that we do in the community and work with our
2: partners. Right. Okay. Um, That's that's great. That's good to see that that education and and outreach is is taking part. That's that's fabulous. Glad to hear about that. Now, there's a, a, a case involving an Indigenous woman that you might be able to speak to, I understand.
0: Yeah, for sure. So with um, with COVID, we, we started thinking outside the box so that we could uh, keep engaged with our community. And so we started a podcast called Crime Stoppers, See It, Say It, Stop It. And through that um, you know, idea, we've partnered with the uh, Toronto Homicide and Missing Persons Unit And so we had on our last uh, podcast episode, uh, a detective um, in speaking on this specific case. And what it is, is uh, so uh, a female by the name of Gloria Jean Abatswe, an Indigenous person uh, who is also known as Marty, was last seen on Friday, February 14th, 1992. She was 22 years old at the time. Uh, Gloria resided at 90 Shooter Street in the city of Toronto at the time of her disappearance. It told family simply she was going to Moss Park with her boyfriend. Um, So her boyfriend's name, all they know uh, is that his name was Lenny, and they were apparently going to meet a man by the name of Bob Russo. Um, So investigators are urging anyone with information on the whereabouts of Gloria and or the identities of Lenny or Bob Russo to contact them they can be contacted directly at 416 808 7411 or as always you can contact Crime Stoppers anonym- anonymously with that information so if there's anybody listening that lived uh, in the area of 90 Shutter Street or in Moss Park during that time or know somebody named Lenny or Bob Russo um, back in 1992 that frequented that area uh, the Toronto Police Missing Persons Unit would love to hear
2: from you Okay, great. That's good information. Uh, Sean, just before we end, I, I want to just reiterate a couple of things, uh, and that is, uh, one, that uh, it, you're a charitable organization and you are not associated, associated with the police. You're not a police program.
0: Correct, yes. We're 100% uh, a charity. We do not receive any government funding, so all the uh, the funds that, that we need to operate and do awareness campaigns and whatnot come through Internal fundraising. Um, we do have a, a couple of officers seconded to Crime Stoppers, but uh, all they are is simply a conduit to take the information, make sure that it's clean, embedded, and send it off to the appropriate agency. The uh, Crime Stoppers program and every Crime Stoppers program around the world is 100% run as a charity by volunteers.
2: And, and also, you mentioned some of the events that you uh, take part in and organize for uh, uh, Crime Stoppers in Toronto. Uh, you mentioned the golf tournament and, and other events. And of course, those are all in meant to to help raise funds for Crime Stoppers uh, for your operation costs.
0: Yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, last year we uh, had our, our Chief of Police Dinner postponed and our golf tournament postponed. Um, but if you wanted to understand a little bit more about what Toronto Crime Stoppers does and how we... Um, work with the community um, through our community reward program, please visit uh, 222tips.com. And, uh, you know, there's a donate button there. If you feel like donating, you know, we could use uh, some funds Mm -hmm. um, for what we do. Um, But, yes, you know, there there are some uh, charitable events that we do, but uh, COVID has pretty much halted anything Mm -hmm. for right now.
2: Right. And lastly, I just want to mention about the term that you have used a few times, and that is about people that uh, call in to help, uh, w- help out by making tips, uh, and that is the word snitch that you quite right pointed out, that it is a word that criminals used about other criminals um, snitching on them. That is not what a general uh, public person uh, making a call in is. It's not a snitch. It is someone that is doing the right thing and making the call to help, uh, help the community and prevent crimes
0: absolutely you know we need to embrace those who are courageous to step forward with information and as i said do the unpopular we need to really look at them as community heroes Mm. that are keeping each other uh, and the rest of the community safe rather than using derogatory words like snitch um you know that's something that lives in the criminal world not in the uh you know general population of what we uh do in the community
2: Right. Sean, thanks so much for taking the time to uh, join us on the show.
0: Anytime. Thank you very much for uh, having oh, me on.
2: You bet. You take care. You too. That is Sean Sporton. He is the chairman of Crime Stoppers in Toronto. And uh, as he pointed out, he organizes several events, uh, fundraising events for the organization, which is a charitable donation uh, company and not associated, associated with uh, the police, not a police program, as he also pointed out and uh does not really receive funding from uh, any government organizations as well. So, uh it's been a pleasure to have him on the show. Don't forget if you have uh, if you see something, say something and you can do that by going to tips and their website is www.222tips.com and you can find out more there. Thank you for listening to Moment of Truth. I'm your host David Moses and we'll see you again next time.